Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Over the past five months now, we've been studying the book of Acts and just watching as this account of the early church has been unfolding. And so over the past few weeks, I just want to remind you what we've already seen. We've seen some spectacular records of salvation. On some occasions, just a few hundred, whereas on others, there have been thousands added. And so the church has now grown to tens of thousands. And the conversion of Paul, that in itself is worthy of remembering. And we've seen extensive growth from this small group of believers who started in Jerusalem. They are now covering probably about a third of the Roman Empire. And more significantly, they're beginning to move into the Gentile world. We've seen signs and wonders. We've seen healings. And equally, we've seen people blinded and struck down dead. We've seen persecution especially in Jerusalem. But we now see, we've seen it in Antioch as well, and in other areas. And we've seen martyrdom, the death of Stephen, which brings home so much about the true cost of discipleship. And so this morning, we're going to move into chapter 15. And here, we encounter a new problem, one we haven't seen before. You may remember we left the account last time with Paul and Barnabas having completed their first missionary journey and returned to Antioch. And now at the beginning of chapter 15, we carry on reading. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Now, because it's quite a long passage we're going to look at today, I want to do this as a commentary in several parts as we go through. And so if we just look at those first couple of verses, we need to understand the significance that circumcision had for the Jews and for the Jewish believers. It was at the centre of their whole culture and custom. The practice of circumcision had started right back in the Old Testament in the time of Abraham. And if you want to look it up later, it's in Genesis 10. And we read, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. 
Abraham fell face down. And God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you fruitful. I will make nations of you. And kings will come from you. I would establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must, keep your, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants, for the generations to come. This is my generation, oh, sorry, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You're to undergo circumcision and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every man among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. Including those who are born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner. Those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so the Jews, looking back at this covenant with Abraham, from whom they felt their whole destiny came looked at that and felt if someone was uncircumcised, they had broken that covenant with God. So being circumcised on the eighth day for males was an important issue. It was something God had commanded them. And then as you continue to look through the Old Testament, you find that that concept is wide and further. And you find phrases that say things like, the Lord God will circumcise your hearts. Now that's not actually looking at an act of heart surgery, but it's talking about an act of dedication to God. Dedicating your heart, making your heart holy and single-minded towards God. And as a result of that, anyone, even in New Testament times, who wanted to convert to Judaism had to be both baptised and circumcised. Now, what we see here is some believers from Judea, obviously by the way they're speaking Jewish believers, turn up in Antioch. And they're teaching in what is a largely Gentile church there that they need to be circumcised to be saved. Now, Paul and Barnabas pick up on this quite quickly. And they recognise it for what it is. It's an attempt to bring new believers back into the fold of Judaism. Because what they were in effect saying is, to become a Christian, you have to first become a Jew. 
You have to be circumcised and become a Jew and become subject to the law in order to be a Christian. Now, when you look at the timing of this point in Acts, what you find is it's widely thought that by then Paul had already written his letter to the Galatian church. And so we know that Paul's thinking on this subject is actually very clear. He opens his letter to the Galatians, where it's in verse 6 of chapter 1, by saying, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As you read through Galatians, he makes his whole feeling on the law and the place of Christians under the law very clear. And so you find in chapter 2 he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And in chapter 3, he actually brings the Galatians quite a challenge. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would just like to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you had heard? Are you so foolish that after beginning with the Spirit, you are now trying to attain your goal by human effort? He makes his position very clear. He teaches against legalism and that continues to be a dominant theme throughout that whole letter to the Galatian church. And so Paul recognises that this is an important issue. This is not something that can be ignored. And so to make sure that they hold a uniform view with the rest of the church... They send Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem to check it out with the other church leaders there. Now, this leads to a discussion that is often referred to as the Council of Jerusalem. And we read about that in verse 3 onwards. The church sent them on their way. And as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. 
Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling them about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Now, it was obvious that even in Jerusalem, There was some debate about this issue because it says right at the beginning in verse 3, after some discussion. But eventually, Peter brings that discussion to a conclusion. He reminds them of the way in which Cornelius and his household had come to salvation. He tells them that God isn't prejudiced. But it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, the experience of the gospel is the same. And then he clearly restates that salvation is by grace and not through the law. And then we see that Paul and Barnabas start to tell the other believers and the leaders of the church about all their experiences amongst the Gentiles. And that they do to reinforce what Peter has argued by giving true life examples. So we've had the discussion. Now it starts to come towards a decision. And James, who is the brother of Jesus, is the next to speak. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this because it's written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. But the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and that all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest of times and is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, Two men who were among the leaders of the brothers. With them, they sent the following letter. 
the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. We've heard that some went out from amongst us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of God. Now James here, he's a shrewd cookie. He's actually quite a master of diplomacy. Because you'll notice he calls Peter by his Hebrew name, Simon. And he does that for the benefit of the Jewish believers. Yet he goes on to quote from Amos when he talks about the prophet. And he quotes that in the Greek from the Septuagint. The Greek translation of the Hebrew New Testament. And he does that to be inclusive of the Greek speakers. So in that short paragraph, he emphasises his desire to include both the Hebraic speakers and the Greek speakers in the church. And he makes it clear that the inclusion of the Gentiles is something that God had already ordained. It was something that had been promised earlier in history. He refers to that passage which actually comes out of Amos chapter 9. But he could have equally quoted from Isaiah. Because in Isaiah 49 verse 6 it says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you might bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So this shouldn't be new to the Jews. This shouldn't be new to those Jewish believers. They ought to already be understanding that God's salvation was always intended to go to the very ends of the earth. And then he reinforces that the people of God will include Gentiles. And that no barriers should be put in their way to stop that happening. And so the decision is communicated. 
It's sent firstly by means of a letter asking the Gentiles to refrain from certain habits. And when you look at those habits, what they are is they are things that would have made sharing meals and fellowship difficult for those with a Jewish tradition. They would have found it quite difficult to sit down and eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. They would have found it quite difficult to eat meat that hadn't been slaughtered in the right way. The last item on the list, sexual immorality. It seems a little bit out of place in that context, but you need to understand what the word used there actually means. In the original texts, the Greek word used is pornea. And that has a far wider meaning than comes out in the translation of sexual immorality. It probably was included to cover one of two things. And commentators differ over which they feel it was. One option is that the Jewish nation and the Gentile nations had different customs about marriage, and in particular about who you could marry. And so some people would find it quite difficult to sit down at a table with someone who they felt they shouldn't be married. That's not right. That's not righteous. Other commentators take a different view and argue it's in there because of the pagan rituals in their temples some of which included sexual practices and prostitution. And that, equally, would have been very offensive to those from a Jewish background. But whatever the intention, the passage makes it clear. It brings an emphasis of refraining from those things that would make enjoying fellowship together difficult. The important thing because they're putting restrictions here on the believers, is, however, that the integrity of the gospel of Christ is maintained. Nothing in that list of things they were to abstain from affects the gospel. Equally, it actually validates the extension of the gospel to the Gentiles, and it puts down legalism. It puts legalism to death. So actually, it's a very well-considered response to the problem they were facing. Then in this chapter, and at the beginning of the next chapter, there follow two very brief accounts. And I don't want to look at one of them in any detail. The other one I'll just pick up at. But firstly, in verse 36 to 41, Paul and Barnabas decide to set off and see how the new believers in the various churches they've planted are getting on. And Barnabas wants to take John Mark with them. John Mark had been with them at the outset on their first missionary journey together. But if you remember, he left them when they got to or south coast of Turkey, can't remember the place name. And Paul doesn't agree. In fact, Paul indicates that he felt he'd been abandoned. So we don't know what happened between Mark and Paul and Barnabas, but when he went on his way, Paul was obviously left harbouring a bit of resentment about that. 
And so they come to an equitable way through it. Barnabas travels to Cyprus with Mark, and Paul teams up with Silas and heads off in a different direction. Now, the good thing that comes out of this dispute is we now have two teams of people going out and about church planting. The second account, which is more relevant, is at the beginning of chapter 16. And when you first read it, it seems to go against the passage that we've just looked at. And so it needs some explanation. At the beginning of chapter 16, we read, He came to Derby, then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew his father was a Greek. As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So having just been defending non-circumcised Gentiles as not needing circumcision, they come across Timothy and Paul decides he should be circumcised. What's that all about? Well, there's an important distinction that needs to be made. Timothy was the son of a mixed marriage. The mother was a Jewess who had become a believer and the father was a Greek. And Paul was fearful that people knowing Timothy's mother was a Jew would regard him as a Jew and would not accept him because he had not been circumcised. So the fear was that fellow Jews would not accept Timothy's ministry. And Paul wanted there to be no barrier to the gospel. Now, where we need to draw the distinction is Paul is not saying, in the case of Timothy, that he needs to be circumcised in order to get salvation. And that is the difference. The Jews who had visited Antioch were saying the believers had to be circumcised to be saved. So what Paul shows is that circumcision in itself is a neutral act. It doesn't get you salvation, but neither is it a hindrance. And not wanting to see a barrier to the gospel, he decides that that is the best course of action on that occasion. Now, I think it shows something of the character of Timothy as well. Because this guy was in his 20s at this point. He was not eight days old. And yet he obviously voluntarily went to the knife. And I, I give him credit for that. <laughs> the hymn writer John Newton summed it up well when he said of Paul, he was a reed in the non-essentials, but an iron pillar in essentials. What he meant by that was Paul was able to distinguish between those things that were unimportant and those things that were important. And where it was unimportant, he was prepared to be flexible 
But where it was important, he was immovable. So how do these passages have application for us today? I think they have a lot. We may not deal today with the issue of circumcision in our churches very often. But actually there are things that get put upon us in similar ways and people make similar claims about other spiritual activities that they have no right to do. When you think of areas like prayer, fasting and worship, are we motivated by grace or are we acting out of legalism? Now what do I mean by that? Have you ever heard of any of these attempts to bring legalism into your life? About how we do things? You must break bread with unleavened bread. Otherwise you won't know God's blessing. I've heard that said. About how and when you do things. You should fast on Fridays. And even on other days, actually, it's good after breakfast to go as long as you can before eating again. Because that gives glory to God. Or about why we do them. We need to always remember God's favour on us is an act of grace. Salvation comes to us through the death and resurrection of Christ alone. And we must never add anything to that. And we need to watch out for it. Because that is what these Jewish believers in Antioch were doing. They were adding another thing you had to do after accepting the life-saving death of Christ. They said, and you have to be circumcised. So do we let circumcision into our lives? Do we let legalism in? Do we allow people to tell us what we must do, when we must do it, and how we must do it? Do we allow lifeless ritual in? Or are we over-influenced by tradition? Are we able, like Paul, to differentiate between the things which are unimportant, because we have traditions, we pass around a bowl of lollies become a tradition. We've done it now for four years. Yeah? If I didn't pass them round one Sunday, someone would complain. Yeah? yeah, well, I forgot. yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. You see, people have complained. You know? Right. But can we differentiate between those things which are unimportant and those things which cannot be changed? If you're not sure whether legalism is affecting your life, just think about these words and watch out for them. Do you often say about things you need to do, I must, or we must? We must fast on Fridays, because actually what it tells you is that you believe it is compulsory. Do you often use the word ought 
I ought to be at the prayer meeting. Because that says you're doing something out of a sense of duty. I'd far rather hear you saying, I want to be at the prayer meeting. I'd like to do this. Because that tells me you're being motivated by grace. One of the things preachers love is when during the meeting some of what they're going to talk about comes up naturally. It tells you that perhaps you did hear from God. And David, right in the opening words this morning, quoted again from Galatians. This is what you need to remember. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. There is no room in the gospel of Christ for legalism. There is no room for us to be driven out of a sense of obligation, duty or compulsion. We live under the grace of God. We live under the grace of God who loves to see us open our hearts and respond let's just stand we hope you enjoyed this podcast don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 